Throughout the summer, guys, we've been kind of taking, or latter part of the summer, I should say, we've been taking a, a trip through the opening portions of the book of Ephesians. It's a book written by the Apostle Paul to a church who he knew and loved, a church that was living in a very cosmopolitan city and dealing with very, very real issues. And the thing that makes Ephesians such a powerful book for us today is that we are dealing with a lot of the same things. I really feel like that in many ways this congregation is dealing with a lot of the same things. When you look at the, at the review of the church in Ephesus generation, or a generation or so later by the Apostle John, well actually by Jesus, given to John on the island of Patmos, as Jesus looks at the church in Ephesus, he said, you know what guys, you, you do a lot of things really well. You, you, you have endurance, you have perseverance, you have scriptural integrity. And that's great. But this one thing I have against you, you have lost your first love. You have lost your passion. You have lost that intensity. You have lost that reckless abandon that you had when you first heard about the gospel. And I really want you to get that back because you have fallen from a great height. You know, I think it can be so easy in the world that we live in today to, to, to do the thing that we're supposed to do. We're here this morning, right? We, we've shown up in church. We got up early. We gathered together with, with our families. We jumped into the car, the minivan, or multiple cars, and here we all arrived. And maybe it was hectic. Maybe it was a little crazy, but we're here. And now we're sitting in a cool auditorium, and there's kind of that, that moment of just deep breath and relaxation. We're among people that we know and love. It can become really easy for us to get comfortable. I think a lot of us as Americans like to be comfortable. We enjoy comfort. Guys, God wants us to be passionate, not comfortable. God wants us to be driven, not complacent. And and as Paul transitions from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 2, there's just some of that energy right there today. I I know that most of us know about the concept of grace. I think that we're familiar with that. And yet, the Apostle Paul reintroduces it in a way, or introduces it in a way that I think just kind of catches all of us off guard. Because he opens up Ephesians 2 and verse 1. If you have your Bibles this morning, flip over there, because we're going to be working through that text as we go through this morning, or click over, however it works for you. But Ephesians 2, one, Paul opens that up and he just says, and you were dead. (laughs) Blunt, straight to the point, but truthful. And you were dead. I don't want to be insensitive in any way this morning, but I think that we're all recognized, we all recognize the fact that when you're dead, you are no longer able to do anything for yourself. When you are dead, you are completely dependent on other people. In fact, you are unaware of where you even are in some ways, at least in this world. And Paul uses that image to express to us the utter hopelessness of our spiritual condition. I just want to be honest with you this morning. I I grew up in a world maybe it's different than some of you guys. I, I, I was adopted into a very godly family, a mom and dad who loved the Lord, who were people that were very, very purposeful in their, in, in their serving in, in the kingdom. They were 
um, pretty much my whole life, they, church, they were planting churches and helping struggling churches. They, they were the kind of people, not someone, this past week I was up in the Midwest and someone came up to me and said, I always loved your dad's stuff. I've still got some of your dad's communion notes. Everything was put together. Everything was meticulous. Everything was well-researched. I grew up in a world where I knew Jesus from the moment that I could speak and Jesus Loves Me was the first song that I learned. So when I say this to you this morning, I want you to understand, I'm just saying this from my perspective. Even though I shouldn't have, and even though the Bible never reinforced it, and certainly my parents would have never said that, I kind of grew up with this idea that I was, I was special. I was just a little bit better than people who didn't know Jesus. I was just a little bit better than people who didn't have a relationship with God like I had. And guys, I just want you to know this morning, there's this a mutually inclusive statement that Paul is making in Ephesians, the second chapter in verse one, and you were dead. I don't care how much you knew about Jesus. I don't care what kind of a family you came up in. You might've lived the exact opposite kind of life that I did. Some of you did here today. I know that. We all have the same problem. Now, Satan will try to whisper in our ears and tell us, well, you're special. This doesn't apply as much to you as it does everyone else. But guys, listen, dead is dead. And you are dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you don't remember, this is written by Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, self-described that way. He was a guy that understood the Old Testament law. He was adherent to every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. If there was a guy who knew how to work his way into a relationship with God, it was Paul. And yet this is Paul that is using inclusive language, we, our, because he recognizes that all of us were dead. We're all broken people. Sometimes we like to forget that. But the book of Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. You know, when I was a kid, my grandpa had an old car. It was a 1970-something, I don't know, Chevrolet Impala, right? It was was a really nice car, but it was sitting out in the pasture. A lot of my grandpa's old cars sat out in the pasture. And I wondered, because it had this thing called a lawn dew roof. Now, some of you from back in the gap, you guys know what lawn dew is. But for those of you who didn't, for some unknown reason in the 1960s and 70s, they thought, well, we'll put a regular roof on a car, but then we're going to put this foamy, fuzzy vinyl thing on half of the roof. I guess it kind of made it look like it was like a, I don't know, like a carriage or something. I don't know why they did it. Anyway, some of you guys might know, but uh, if you don't know what lawn is, you can Google that later. Um, but this had this like this lawn roof. Now, it's a beautiful brand new car. My grandpa brought it home just not long um, after, after he had gotten it. Um, my, my family wasn't incredibly wealthy, so when, when they got a brand new car, it was kind of a big deal. My grandpa had just washed the brand new car, and it was sitting in in the driveway. My dad remembers this story vividly. They were visiting around dinner when my grandma stood up to get something off of the stove and observed that the family goat 
had decided that he should climb on top of the new car. Now, if you've ever had goats at your house, you know they like to climb, right? And an old impala had this sloped trunk thing, and the goat looked at that and said, hmm, it's kind of gray, and it has a slope. I think it's a mountain. So he climbed up on the top of the lawn of the car, and then he encountered the lawn dew. Now, a goat doesn't know what to do with lawn dew. A goat really doesn't know what to do with much in life, except that he should sample it and see if it tastes good. I don't know what they make Londu out of, but apparently Londu tasted good. So as my grandmother stands up to get something off the stove, she looks out in horror and sees the family goat atop the brand new car, tearing strips of Londu off, eating them. You guys didn't know my granddad, but um, my grandpa had a bit of an explosive temper. My grandmother apparently said something to my grandpa like, uh, the goat is on the car. And uh, my grandpa stands up from the table in a rush. He goes to the window and he sees this. And without saying a word, he goes to the other end of the house. My dad already knew what was coming. He went behind the utility room door. We weren't really safe with guns in those days. We just stuck him behind the utility room door. Um, he come out of the front of the house, opens up the door, lays a gun on the, 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 the banister of the porch, blam, shoots the goat right off the top of the car. Aren't you glad that my grandpa wasn't God? <laughs> because that goat was dead to rights. He had sinned. <laughs> he had indeed fallen short of my, gra- my, my grandpa's idea of what he should be doing. And you know, the story could have ended there for every single one of us as well. We were dead in our sins and transgressions, and we stayed there because there was nothing we could do to fix it. We were dead. But fortunately, if you've been reading ahead, you know that Ephesians, the second chapter, doesn't stop there. We were dead. We were totally unable to help ourselves. Dead people cannot become undead, right? The only dead person to ever resurrect themselves, resurrected through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that was Jesus Christ because he was sinless. We aren't sinless. But God can raise the dead. And I want you to notice the next two words in in this text. First, Ephesians 1 and verse number 4 says, but God. I don't care who you are this morning. I don't care how your story has played out. There's one part of your story that will be transformational, but God. That moment that God became a part of your life is that transformational moment for every single one of us. And he says, but God being rich in mercy, unlike my granddad, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, we might show the immeasurable riches of his, richness, riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Probably most of us this morning have come to church with our identities somewhat secure. Maybe we know that we're a fifth grade teacher heading back into the classroom or a principal. Maybe we would say, well, I'm an electrician or I'm a second year college student or I'm a, I'm a homemaker, or, I'm a dad, or, I'm a mom, I'm a parent, I'm a wife, I'm a husband. Maybe I'm a lawyer, a retired salesman. Maybe you're an oil-filled worker. We, we all have those things that we would say. It's my prayer this morning that when you leave here, you recognize that God would want you to be something bigger. God has called us and asked us today that we might leave and we might say, I am an ambassador. In the time that we have, we're just gonna take a look at three really quick things that Ephesians, the second chapter, tells us that we dare never forget. And the first one is this, that God has made the possible, the impossible, excuse me, possible. God has made the impossible possible. We've talked a little bit about that, but uh, about how we were resurrected from the dead. But there's a story in the life of Jesus that really powerfully illustrates this. A young man comes to Jesus, and, and he, he asks Jesus, he said, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And, and this is a cool thing, right? Here's a young man. He's thoughtful. He wants to do what God's called him to do. He's got that thought process kind of squared away. And in a young person, this is, this is notable, and Jesus did take note of it. He, he told him, well, you need to keep the law and the, and the prophets. And in the book of Matthew, he kind of lays out all the things that he should do. And the young man comes back to Jesus and he says, well, look, I, I, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? I, I think that somewhere in his, in his heart, he just realized, <laughs> even though I, I've done all these things, I, I don't see how doing these things can actually take care of the problem. He instinctively recognized as a spiritual young man that he was dead. No matter what he did, he couldn't undid what he had already done. And so he, he's asking Jesus that question. In verse number 21, Jesus comes back to this young man and he says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, that's what that word really means there in the Greek, go and sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. This sermon isn't really about this this morning, but I really can't talk about this story without just quickly saying that this young man's problem is often my problem and maybe yours. That he was distracted. There were a lot of things going on in his life. And, and Jesus said, if you want to really be complete, if you want to really figure this out, here's what you need to do. You need to eliminate some distractions, son. And we know how the story ends. You've heard it a thousand times. 22, the young man heard this. He went away sad because he had great wealth. But then there was a conversation that began to come up between Jesus and the apostles. Then Jesus said to his apostles, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. I know there's a temptation this morning for us again to say, Well, this isn't me because I'm not rich. You live in America, you're rich. All right, by, by first century standards, we're extremely wealthy. How many of you don't have air conditioning in your house right now? Because if you do raise your hand, we're going to go help you get that fixed this afternoon, right? <laughs> it's too hot. We live in a world where every convenience is ours. We are so spoiled, we don't even see it, right? Truly, I tell you, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Bible scholars love to argue, is this like a little sheep gate on the side of the eastern gate in the wall of Jerusalem they called the eye of a needle? 
Or is it really an eye of a needle? Look, guys, it doesn't really matter. You can't fit a camel through a gate this small or an eye of a needle. No matter what we're talking about, this is an impossibility. And Jesus is setting this up for these guys. He's saying, look, you can't do this. A rich person can't get into heaven. Well, the apostles hear that, and they step back, and they said, well, they were greatly astonished in verse 25, and they said, well, who then can be saved? You know, we, we thought, Jesus, that you had an answer to something. Who can be saved? And notice what Jesus says back. Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but you guys are here. So um, I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but I, I just want to reinforce this to all of you guys. I think most of you know this, but I just want to remind you that without Jesus Christ, every single one of us are lost. Without Jesus Christ, every single one of us are separated from the love of God. Without Jesus Christ, none of us can have the salvation that we desire. It doesn't matter how much you know and how much you've grown up with and how much you've, you've, you've collected and how much you've done. This young man knew a lot. He did a lot. He was a good person. Without Jesus, we're lost. God does the impossible. Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I think it's obvious to most of us that after 6,000 6, years or so of recorded history, things are not getting better in this world. In fact, I feel like, and maybe you do too, that it seems to be declining very rapidly and that we're on a collision course for some destiny in the future that we're not particularly certain of, but we're fairly certain is not going to be a good one. The signs of destruction and deterioration in our culture within our families, within our churches, are everywhere. It's impossible for us to miss them. But it's not impossible for God to fix them. I think some of us have just got to a place that we just kind of sit back and we're letting the runaway train run away. Guys, I, I don't think Jesus wants us to do that. God has done the impossible, and I think he is calling us to believe that he is still in the business of the impossible. You might be watching the news and thinking, Jason, there's no way you're going to turn this country around. You're right, we're not. But God can. You might have someone who's a part of your life and part of your story, and you look at them and you want so much for them to, to straighten out the sin problem in their life or to come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and you're thinking in your mind, there's no way that I could convince them to do it. You're probably right, but God can. It's imperative that we believe and recognize that God is the answer, the answer to the challenges that we're dealing with in the world today. There's a lot of things that are impossible for us, but with God, but God, we don't forget that this morning, but God, but God comes in and he changes the narrative, but God comes into a broken family and he restores what is broken, but God comes into a sin-filled life and he refreshes a broken and sin-filled life and that person becomes one of the most powerful evangelists of the gospel, writes two-thirds of the New Testament and he's writing this today. The apostle Paul knows what happened when God shows up and guys, I think we need to get passionate and get excited that when God God shows up, things change. 
We're kind of like the church in Ephesus. We're just sitting back, know all about God, can defend all the gospel. We have all the head knowledge, but we have no heart in it anymore. It's time that we do. Because God is pretty excited about us. You notice how Paul finishes this off? He starts off, but you were dead. And then he says, but God, or and you were dead, excuse me. And he says, but God provided for your salvation. But notice how he finishes these opening 10 verses or so. In verse number 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you have various different uh, versions of the Bible, they they translate this opening word differently. Um, Some of them will say that we are his handiwork, or we are his masterpiece, or we are his accomplishment, or we are his creative work, or the product of his hand. It's not hard to understand what the Greek is saying there, if you look at those together, that God is taking a personal interest in us, how crazy is that, right? God, God speaks into the darkness and the expanse of the universe, and boom, the universe explodes. Planets and stars, massive, huge distances between them. But he delights in you and me. He's hands-on. He's personal with you and me. If you notice in the beginning, God created everything by speaking it, but when he comes to Adam, it says that he formed Adam from the dust of the ground. The idea there is that God that God took a personal interest in the creation of Adam. It wasn't just enough for him to speak it into existence, which God could do, but he formed him, and he breathed into him the breath of life. We, you guys, us, the church family, we are his handiwork, his workmanship, his delight. I hope you're a little humbled by that this morning. Because sometimes we go through a whole week and we never really think about what our doting, loving, gracious, merciful, heavenly Father would want from us. And I think that's why Paul is leading up in the way that he is to verse number 10. Because he's telling the church, hey guys, we were created in Christ Jesus to do something. I think a lot of times we, we, we come to church and we kind of say, hey guys, this is who we need to be and this is what we need to avoid and this is what we, what we, should, be, we should be doing and this is the kind of people that we should be, but we don't talk about what we should be doing. And it's hard because it's individual. Every one of us in this room today are different people. We're in different circles of people. We have different skills. We have different personalities. We're in different places in life. We have access to different opportunities. But Paul uses a phrase here that I think is powerful. He said, we were created for good works. I just want to read a few verses to you this morning at risk of being boring. I just want to read to you what the Bible says about good works. What are good works? 1 Thessalonians the fifth chapter in verse 15, he says, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Returning good or evil, good for evil, there we go. Good works. Galatians, the sixth chapter in verse 10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are in the household of faith. Paul tells the church in Galatia, it means that you just go around doing good to people. You just seek to do good things. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one might receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it's good or evil. 
Paul reminds us that someday we're going to have to give an account for how we've used the time and opportunity that we've been given. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8, For God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in good works. He's kind of talking about the same thing to the church in Corinth as he is to the church in Ephesus. Hey guys, God's grace should lead you to become people that are just doing good stuff, right? How about Colossians, the first chapter, verse 10? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing good fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Or 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 16, now may the Lord... Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who loved us and who gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, nor set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Paul tells Titus in Titus 2, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. Again in verse 14 in the same book, he tells Titus, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 3 in verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want to insist on these things. That, you do, that those of you who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and they're profitable for people. Finally, maybe Hebrews does a wonderful job of saying, let us consider how we might stir one another up to love and to good works. The grace of God, guys, is not a license for us to sit back in comfort. The late grace of God is not a license for us to sit back and become complacent about the situation in which the rest of the world finds itself. The grace of God is this place where God has dealt with that deepest hurt in our life, that separation between us and God. And when that separation is, is, is taken care of, when our sins have been washed away in the waters of baptism, when he pours within us his Holy Spirit and we become alive through Christ, he said, now you have an opportunity to just with reckless abandon, just go out there and do good stuff for people because you have nothing less to, left to fear. The fear of death has been broken. You're not a slave to sin. You are free. Go help people. Guys, we're not just supposed to be sitting here twiddling our thumbs waiting for Jesus to come. I just read to you a third of the verses of the New Testament that talk about we are created, commanded, encouraged to do good stuff. So what are we doing? It's different for all of us. I can't come up here this morning and say, this is what you should do. I'm not going to do that because that's not fair. You've been uniquely created. You are God's workmanship. He created me one way, but he created you with your own special vision, your own special talent, your own special heart, your own special story that has brought you to the place where you are today. He didn't do that because he was just bored. He did that because he knows that there are certain things you can do that I can't. There are certain opportunities that you can capitalize on that I'll never see. We all are called in the capacity in which God has created us and designed us and formed us together to be his workmanship. You want to know the truth? Here it is as we close this morning. 
This hurts my heart sometimes to say this, but we are his image. We live in a culture and a world today where we are obsessed with image. We, we, are, we are careful about how we take our pictures to put on our social media. We want to make sure that if someone talks about us that it's said a certain way, we will become angry if someone does something or says something to distort our image. I want you to know that the creator of the universe, the almighty, powerful God, has chosen you and I to be his image, his representation. You want to talk about humbling. That's humbling. Genesis 1, verse 27. Let us make man in our image. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, both male and female. He created them. Guys, we, from the very beginning, were God's image bearers. When the world sees God, they see us. You want to know why people maybe have a little problem with Christianity in our culture today? Maybe it's because we've substituted something for our image. Maybe our image doesn't look like Jesus, but it looks like our traditions. Maybe our image doesn't look like Jesus, but it looks like our fundamentalism. Maybe our image doesn't look like the person that we're supposed to represent. Because I think, guys, that you can't help but love Jesus. I just think that when you're full of the Holy Spirit, in fact, Paul said the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And then he finishes that by saying, and against such things there is no law. The world never has enough of Jesus. We are his image. You know, sooner or later we all ask this question. <laughs> Why in the world would God do that? I don't know. He doesn't tell us. He knew we were going to blow it. He knew we were going to be a miserable representation of him, even in my own life personally. Why would God go to all the extraordinary lengths that he did to, to make sure that I was born into, the right, into a family that would raise me up into church? That would, why would he do that? I don't know. Years ago, a good friend of ours, Brandon, wrote a song, said, I don't know why. We'll never know in this life. But the simple answer that we need to know is this. You and I, through our God-given identity, are called to display God to a broken, lost world. Let me close with what Paul writes to the church in Corinth this morning. In 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 17, it's church in trouble. Church had some big problems. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, and through Christ, and though Christ reconciled himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he has made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in him, 
we might become the righteousness of God. This morning, you might be an oil-filled worker, a school teacher, a student about to head back into class, but I hope, I hope you're willing to embrace a new identity. If you're a blood-washed saint here today, if the Holy Spirit is alive in your life, you are more than you. You are a representative of the Heavenly Father. And he has one message in this world. Get things right with me. He has one purpose in this world, to bring people to a saving relationship with Jesus. I know that the same cannot be said about me. I have multiple messages and multiple purposes, but but God really wants to work in every one of us today and focus our lives on one thing, because that is the thing that matters. Everything in this world will burn up someday. Everything in this world will be left behind us when our lives are finished, except one thing, and that is what we have accomplished and what we have built into the kingdom. And that's not talking about the structure of the church. Sure, we need buildings. Sure, we need investment. In, in, in property so that we can do ministry. But guys, what God is talking about when he talks about a ministry of reconciliation is bringing lost people to a loving Lord. It's our job. This morning, if I'm hollering and yelling at you guys, I'm not mad at you. All you guys know that. I love you guys. But I'm super passionate about this because we're running out of time. We have a generation of young people that have decided that maybe Christianity was just too good to be true. Guys, I don't believe it. They've decided, you know what? I don't think I believe in God because what I saw out of people who said that they were Christians doesn't look like what Jesus looked like. I don't know if I can believe this anymore. I think you and I know, oh yeah, they can believe it. The problem is, is that I got in the way. Maybe you got in the way too. We're ambassadors. We're representatives creator of the universe sent with one simple message get right with God I would be remiss this morning if I didn't offer an invitation because maybe some of you came to church today and you're not maybe it's a decision that you've put off for a long time maybe you should have made that decision when you were a kid maybe it's a decision that you've been thinking about recently and you know that your life is full of sin and you know that that needs to be washed away. You need to make a decision as an adult to consent that you want to follow Jesus. If you've never made that decision on your own, I encourage you this morning to come or visit with one of us before you leave today. Maybe there's someone in the room today that just says, you know, I made that decision a long time ago, Jason, but I've not been an ambassador and I just want my church family to come around me and support me and pray for me that I'm going to be the kind of image bearer that God's called me to be. Whatever your need might be, won't you stand? Let's sing together.